0: Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. My guest today is Richard Epstein, professor of law at the University of Chicago and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Richard, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: It's very nice to be here.
0: Today, we're going to talk about Walmart. Walmart is a lightning rod issue for a lot of Americans at all different parts of the economic spectrum it's also a lightning rod for intellectuals which is quite a strange phenomenon but i know you have some interesting thoughts on the legislative environment that walmart has found itself in recently tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah um Walmart basically has to face two problems, one of which is a problem that it shares with every other company in the United States, which is that if you start to look around, there are all sorts of statutes having to do with wages and with employment conditions that generally impede the efficient flow of capital and the effective distribution of goods and services, but they are not picked on in any kind of a special way, and they just negotiate this as best as they can. But Walmart's is a very distinctive firm in terms of the way in which it designs its compensation packages for workers and the way in which it uses these huge physical layouts in order to distribute goods and services economically to its uh, customers. And one of the things that it's been able to do consistently is to undersell all of its rivals um, in very many markets. It now has a basic... Income of about two hundred and eighty eight billion dollars, the last figures I saw, and a rather small profit margin off of that of around three percent or ten billion dollars. So what happens is if you 've got somebody with a very distinctive profile it 's going to always look its opponents are going to always look for ways to get differential or selective legislation in, which will place an immense burden upon walmart 's and the other big box retailers who are in its position and will do so in a way that leaves relatively unscathed amid somewhat smaller and perhaps less nimble competitors. And so the second problem that Walmart faces is, what do you do when you start getting hit by legislation that applies to you and only you, and which is deliberately organized in ways that are designed to upset your business plan?
0: Now, the source of that legislation, uh, politicians will will paint it as their desire to help the the little guy but of course the underlying source of that legislation is the failure of certain retailers particularly grocery stores to adapt to adapt they're unionized they're less nimble less flexible and they are uh, lobbying for these legislate legislation
1: yeah look i mean essentially what happens is everybody wants to travel under the mantra of consumer welfare and there's no doubt that at least somebody in some of these disputes has to be right about that Uh, the general way in which you promote consumer welfare is to leave firms alone and let them decide the mix of quality price and convenience that they offer to consumers and they will pick very well for themselves But what happens is the unions, and by the way, it's not just unions. Remember, these unions work for firms, and if the unions go down in those firms, the firms are going down themselves.
0: They're struggling, Um, that's right.
1: They are going to form a coalition. Walmart is in Bentonville, Arkansas. It is not necessarily a local business. It doesn't have strong political ties. Uh, The legislation that you see in Maryland comes at the state level, and in a place like Illinois, it comes in the city of Chicago, uh, depending on where it is that you think you have the greatest power. And what do you do? Well, essentially, there are two kinds of targets that you can hit. One of them is you can start to have zoning laws. Now, I mean, one has to be very clear about what a zoning law is and how it operates. And essentially, what zoning laws do is they create these sort of neutral and impersonal zones. It was part of the administrative expertise movement of the 1920s and 30s, and it gets carried forward. But what we discover with zoning is that zoning can be done as part of a comprehensive plan, but then there's a second tier in which variances from zones or special cases have to be considered administratively on a one-off basis. And what these guys have managed to do is to take control of a place like Chicago, with the various zoning boards and commissions, and say, Walmarts, you're not welcome. And what that does, of course, is it completely destroys the business plan because they can't open up doors unless they were to downsize to a fraction of their original size, which means that they can't give the mix of goods and services that customers want consistent with their business plan. The only way they can stop this is to go elsewhere. Now, in the case like Chicago, there's a certain degree of foolishness associated with these kinds of regulations, because the city is, as these things go, relatively small and skinny along the lake, so that you could go to Evergreen Park or you could go to Oak Park or someplace nearby, open up a shop, give them the real estate taxes, draw off the sales tax revenues, and get large numbers of customers from Chicago who will migrate over the border. That's why the mayor regards this strategy as one of absolutely suicidal implications because as far as he's concerned, if this thing gets passed, and it's right now before the city council with a favorable vote from it, and it has to go through a mayoral veto and a perhaps override, he says, I'm going to have to raise the property tax in order to offset the decline in the sales tax.
0: Now, describe that legislation in Chicago, what it required, that the city council passed.
1: Well, I mean, the the, the Chicago one is actually – the zoning stuff is separate, but I sort of mixed two stories, the – The legislation is typically health and wage legislation, and the union strategy and the rival strategy is figure out a minimum wage or a health package which is less than you provide your workers currently, but more than Walmart um, supplies to at least some of its workers. Put that in as a statutory minimum only for large corporations, in this case companies that have a billion dollars in sales and 900 or 90,000 square feet of store space and so forth, and if that thing goes through, then they can't open up there because they won't be able to maintain their own profit margins, which are so narrow anyhow, uh, If they have to meet that rate structure, so they're going to go migrate out. The mayor is apoplectic about this because he sees it as a form of rank protectionism and as a real source of revenue loss, because even if the store is kept out. When it goes nearby, the customers are mobile, and they will migrate out, at least in some degree, and there'll be a leaky sip, which is why it is in general. Local governments tend to be a little bit more pro-competitive sometimes than national governments because the exit options and the nearby adjacent communities are often a viable competitive threat that keep down taxation and regulation.
0: So the Chicago City Council is uh, requiring certain large retailers to pay a certain minimum of... uh, Wage and I think benefits
1: yeah, uh, in, it comes out to thirteen dollars in a package. It was the same thing that was passed at the state level by um, Maryland, only in Maryland what happened is it was struck down on the grounds that the federal preemption laws or uh, pension laws had preempted that is it taken over this particular area and made the statute illegal yeah.
0: let's talk and, about let 's talk about the Maryland law for a minute. The Maryland law, which was passed by the legislature, I think was vetoed by the governor and then overridden again got it uh, required all employers of a certain description, which we'll come to in a second, to pay at least 8%, I think, of their wage bill in the form of health care benefits. That's correct. Which is a bizarre law because it basically says that the legislature knows what's best for employees. Some employees perhaps, evidently they they do, prefer higher wages and smaller benefits. There's a mix of options out there, but Walmart uh, – the only – company it applied to was was walmart
1: well actually the law also applied i think to johns hopkins but they were in compliance they were already it in with event. the minimum
0: uh but the only one that was would have been in uh jeopardy in jeopardy was walmart uh that that passed uh but it was struck down as you say by a federal judge could you explain why that was struck down yeah, in a little just, more detail because i think it's quite interesting in, uh, footnote it seems to me it should be struck down because it only applied to one Company, it's a bizarre world we live in that you can pass legislation that singles out a single company effectively. I understand it didn't literally say Walmart, but it effectively singles out Walmart, and somehow that's not enough to rule it as unconstitutional. But it was struck down. Describe why.
1: Well, let me first of all let me explain why it wasn't struck down constitutionally, and then how the statutory arguments unfolded. Uh, On the constitutional level, what you're basically referring to is something known as a bill of attainder. And a bill of attainder is a particular piece of legislation that strips one individual of his possessions, his properties, liberty, and so forth. And these things are explicitly banned under our Constitution as being essentially fundamentally inconsistent with the rule of law. What happens is you now have to try to find some way to bring this within the bill of attain situation and the answer is it doesn't fit there if you're walmart because you're a corporation you're not one of these individuals so you do is you try to go to some more generalized guarantees in this case the argument that no person including corporations shall be deprived of the equal protection of the laws and you might have thought quite sensibly that is a statute which was intended to and had the effect of singling out a single firm would have been regarded as a rule that had denied it the equal protection of the laws. But on the other hand, this was not a criminal punishment, it was just a general statute, and the Supreme Court, starting at the post-New Deal era, had taken the general position that so long as you could dream up a rational basis for a statute, the equal protection challenge did not apply insofar as it inhibited firms in the exercise of their economic liberties, their abilities to buy and sell and to hire and fire, and so forth. This is known... Somewhat misleadingly, as the rational basis test. So, the judge, when he faced this thing in the Walmart's case, he said, I'm bound by this tradition in which virtually anything that you do can be justified by some kind of a fig leaf, and so therefore it's constitutionally okay.
0: Repulsive, in my opinion.
1: Well, I, I, the, it, is, it is so zany that you, you just can't believe it, but look, this is the way in which the American tradition has run. Um, just to digress for a second, Russell. The sole objective of virtually every piece of progressive legislation that was passed and challenged was to create some form of local monopoly, either by granting a firm an explicit monopoly or by placing barriers to entry against its plausible rivals. And what the New Deal Constitutional Revolution was designed to do and in fact achieve was to make it perfectly okay for the state legislatures and the federal government to create these kinds of statutory monopolies, either directly in some cases or by indirection, as takes place when you're talking about here. So this is a long tradition, and, did, and, and no district court judge is going to knock it down.
0: Did that require Roosevelt's judges, to, justices appointed
1: by Roosevelt, to, to get oh, that pass? Oh, absolutely. Because um, I assume there was it, hostility
0: it went, to it before that.
1: What um, there was? Oh, there, look, it's a little bit more complicated as it always is. There was no doubt that there was some movement in that direction even before the court-packing struggle of 1937, but it was clearly the appointment of, of people like Frankfurter and Black in that year, which were critical in order to redefine and Douglas, to redefine the way in which the court moved. And once those guys got on, it was no ambiguity whatsoever. There was just a full-throated rejoicing over the fact that Congress now had the problems to solve all the difficulties of the industrial state. So that tradition is very strong in American constitutional law, and in many ways it's much more important in terms of the everyday life of people than some modern developments in constitutional law that deal with things like abortion and so forth. So it's a dead end on the constitutional issue
0: on that particular one yeah, on, that on, issue, on, on equal economic, protection
1: yeah, equal protection due process and economic liberties don't go together so what used to be the preferred freedoms in the old court pre-37 has essentially become a constitutional doormat anybody can step on it at will but there is a statute known as ERISA which deals with employment and retirement and insurance and so forth that's
0: ERISA E-R-I-S-A yeah.
1: God knows what it stands for it but doesn't it matter it, it doesn't matter <laughs> for these we'll
0: purposes. link to it later
1: yeah. we'll figure it out Um But ERISA is the generalized statute that deals with pension and health care and insurance and so forth. And, And what happened was, after the constitutional stuff disappeared, Many firms got together and said, look, we are going to be hit very hard if there are a series of non-uniform laws that relate to the kinds of operations that we do. You've already told us that we're national businesses. You have now gave Congress, under the other great development of the Roosevelt Court, comprehensive power to regulate each and every part of the economic system. And so what you have to do is to make good on that promise by, at the very least, giving us a uniform set of laws. This then introduces a doctrine known as federal preemption, and that doctrine says where the federal government speaks, the state courts and the state legislatures cannot contradict them. And so the question was whether or not when you have a general program, for example, with respect to health um, or standards set up by the United States government, you can say that this peculiar law, which may be perfectly okay, even, you know, under the Constitution, is in fact running afoul of that statute. And so there's no doubt that this one did create that tension, and they struck it down. Now, ironically, if they had passed a law in in Maryland which said every single business has to pay this tax, it would have had exactly the same result. That is, this was not a case in which the invidious distinction against Walmart was the topic, which is the thing that got you so upset just a moment ago. This was a case in which what got people upset was the fact that the federal standards essentially allowed a degree of flexibility on these kinds of things, and now the states are taking it away. And this is one of the biggest issues you have in health care. It deals with all sorts of questions of whether or not health maintenance organizations, the HMOs, can be sued, for example, for various kinds of derelictions, or whether a risk of preemption, as it's called, protects them. Um, people in the audience might not think this is a big deal, but It is. I mean, you're talking about trillions of dollars that are at stake in pension plans and insurance plans and in health plans. And there have probably been a dozen or two dozen Supreme Court cases trying to figure out how the preemption works. And there are even more intermediate and lower court cases, each of which is so intricate that the moment I put it aside in order to turn my mind to something else, I forget all the particular details (laughs) of the case. Uh,
0: Speaking uh, briefly about the... um that judicial decision where the federal uh ERISA uh, the federal exemption under ERISA ha- came into play do you think that was good uh that was good uh law
1: yeah i mean it it's uh, the statute on preemption is pretty broad and it covers any kind of state law that relates to the operation of a health plan and you know clearly setting minimum standards on benefits 8% or 3 dollars or whatever it is seems to do with that the basic system on uniformity rules out necessarily all sorts of inconsistent state laws, and that seems to be it so I think in effect that most people who work in the area were uh pleasantly not not surprised but pleasantly understood that this was in fact a state court judge who was doing what he wanted to do. And in fact, you know, you could always draw the following kind of conspiracy theories, which may make sense in this, which is some people in the Maryland legislature say, look, there's a tremendous level of local populist pressure to pass this kind of thing. I regard it as foolish and ruinous and unfair and invidious, but I'm going to vote for it anyhow, because it's unconstitutional.
0: Profiles and courage. Yeah, well, it gives you the cover. Uh,
1: Yeah, and so, I mean... You don't know, I mean, interestingly enough, is in so many cases, if you change the uh, preemption rules so as to allow this kind of statute, it may well have been that the folks who were on the fence would have dug in their heels and say, we do not want this. And, and Russell, it's extremely important that people understand that this is a battle not only over this particular statute, it's a battle over the way in which regulation works more generally i mean one of the things that get people in chicago for example so upset about the prospect that its version of the anti walmart law will go into place is that if this one goes into place then the next one is going to go into place and it will be even more draconian and so what happens is put yourself in the business in the position of a firm like walmart which is saying maybe i'd like to open up 20 superstores inside the chicago area And suppose they made the judgment, we don't like this particular statute, but we'll change the mix of employees we hire. We'll hire a few of them. We'll make them a little bit smarter and better educated. We'll give them bigger kinds of support so the poor people are left out on the limb, but we'll be able to operate. And then they open them. Well, once they open the stores, Russ, they've lost all their leverage. And so the same guy, Joe Moore, who introduced this one, comes back and says, we really have them in in a hard place now. Let's just change it. And what we're going to do is raise that yeah. to fifteen dollars. Yeah. Well, see okay, the
0: be- but it's so nice. You'll get all those mom and pop stores opening up with those sh- they, those low that- prices, the huge selection. Remember how well they paid their employees? Those little neighborhood stores.
1: Yeah, look, many of them were private well, people who actually couldn't even afford employees. They worked well. I mean, you know, my own sense about it is, by the way, this is one of the ironic things about Walmart is in a strange sense in most of the communities to which it comes. It may displace some competitors, but it turns out Walmarts cannot be all things to all people and have consistent business plan. And around it, since there's this customer flow, are created business districts in which small stores, after a year or two, start to flourish. And here's one of the reasons why. You're thinking of opening up a store, and you want foot traffic, and you're told that there's a Walmart nearby, and you ask yourself, what's the odds of this thing going out of business in the next five years? And you say, not very large, at least in the United States. So you're willing to open up around it. What's Walmart's attitude for it? Well, we specialize in in low-end economical real estate. you know, retail kinds of items and certain kinds of staples that anyone's willing to buy from us toilet paper or whatever. But, you know, somebody may want to come and go to us for some of their stuff, but they'd like high-end stuff nearby. And if they have these stores there, they're going to be more likely to come to us because they can give some of their dollars off to somebody else. And so the logic of business is sometimes you want to be near your competitors and near your complements rather than to be far away from them.
0: Sure, save on travel costs. And what happens
1: is Walmart wants these guys to come around, and in the end the overall neighborhood is going to go larger, is going to be more attractive. As there are more retailers, there's more disposable income, there's a greater pressure on labor, so wages start to move up. And, And what one has to understand about all of this is in a dynamic sense, you don't want to just assume that... Walmart is a one-and-done deal. It's a comprehensive evolution and flow that has to be understood. And this also works, I think, on the employee side. Um, It's very important to understand that most of these companies that are real tough on wages and on benefits for entry-level employees know that the only way that they will be able to succeed is through internal promotion. And that means that all of a sudden they may be tough on one thing, but if it's a question of Giving you a, a short course in technical skills that will allow you to move up to an assistant store manager and so forth, they're willing to foot the money for that because. If they give it to you, you've learned how to be better for them, but the skills are not going to easily transfer to somewhere else, so you're going to be hired away the next day.
0: And it's an internal motivator, it's a plum and, to offer a, people. And
1: so they, they have, these firms have internal cultures. And the last thing one wants to do when you hear about these low wages at the bottom end is to assume that people who start there stop there. Um, many of them start to move up, some of them move out into other positions, and so forth and and the key feature about this is it 's so important for people to get into these kinds of positions when they 're young and marginal workers learn the kinds of skills and personal character traits that work in business, have those things developed, and then become more marketable. The moment you start putting these exclusionary bans on, you create an underclass.
0: I've never understood why it helps low-skill workers to make it difficult for firms to hire them, (laughs) which is what these legislative solutions often do.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's it. The other thing, by the way, you have to understand is that somehow or other they have a real view about supply and demand, which is that everything is completely inelastic. That is, no matter what you do with respect to the price, no matter how high or low you raise it, somehow or other the quantity that's going to be sold is exactly unchanged. And if you listen to the remarks, this is what they say about Chicago, we're such a wonderful market that even if we charge them that much more, they're still going to come here exactly as they did before because they can't do without us. Well, this is the only market in the history of the world where, as the cost increases, the quantity demanded remains exactly the same.
0: Yeah, it's a it's quite a breakthrough. But it, what's cool it's about real it? It's a novel
1: theory, isn't well, it? Well, and
0: the council is the only uh, the only economists privy to it. Uh, they've sort of made a breakthrough. They'll probably get some kind of Nobel recognition for it. It's quite inside. Um, an insight.
1: The, the, and and it's interesting, by the way. There are people who understand this because there were there were many aldermen not a huge number, of, who voted against it. And for the most part, they came from truly impoverished neighborhoods. I mean, you know, look, there's another way of putting the point, which again goes back to sort of one of the fundamental economic tenets, and that's the position of revealed preferences. What happens is the people who say that the Walmart raises you know, wages and, and benefit structure is so intolerable are, in fact, people who would never get on those lines if the jobs were off. And so they're making this fine aesthetic judgment about how the rest of the world ought to comport itself. But, you know, when they opened up those stores in Evergreen Park and they advertised for new workers, they had 600 places. They had 25,000 applications, all from individuals who had no idea that they were better off with a job than without one. They really misunderstood that they were better off unemployed. Well and they a, just went <laughs> on these lines because there was some well, sort of cognitive slip.
0: Well, that, that you raise a very important point. I, I don't understand, again, the critics of, of Walmart or those who would who would handicap Walmart, What's their perspective on the people who choose to work there? I think they really – to give them the benefit of the doubt, I assume that they have a worldview that says these people don't have another alternative. That may be true for some of them, unfortunately. Yes, but on the other
1: hand, one alternative is better than is, none. Right,
0: and and I, it seems cruel. Um, um,
1: there, There is a kind of a certain hardness, and one of the things, of course, that happens with respect to this is it leads to a certain disingenuous kind of discourse. That is, when you're trying to tell your rank and file, or when you're working with your, your at this point, the firm that's in opposition to Walmart, you say, these guys are killing us in the competitive market, and we've got to find a way to hobble them that doesn't interfere with the way in which we work. And that's been the theme of unionization all along, and I'll talk about it in a second. Right, that's the theme that you start telling to yourself, but publicly you can't say that theme. It's awkward. It's too awkward because it's too self-interested. So what you do is you put it in the name of consumer welfare and worker welfare. Well, at that point you have to fight the the revealed preference argument. So what you do is you develop a systematic bias for making sure that all these poor people are irrational, so that when you decide to regulate, you protect them from yourselves. From, from themselves. themselves, yeah. And what? That is the way in which the, the particular game, that's the way the dynamic has always worked itself out in these particular areas. And so what happens is you, in order to win a short-term political battle, you so undermine the forces of general economic rationality and human behavior that after a while, any form of regulation that you can start to invent is going to be perfectly appropriate because it's always lemmings being led to the slaughter. Let's... And,
0: well, let's talk about that unionization because some people may not be aware of, of what's happened to the union uh, movement. movement. And in particular, a, a lot of this involves super Walmarts, Walmarts that have grocery uh, arms as part of the store. Or they're selling produce and basic items sure. and meat, and they're incredibly effective, incredibly uh, high quality at a, at, a, at a low price, and they're driving the… I think people tend to think of Walmart as driving out little mom and pop general stores on Main Street. But it's their real com- their real competitors are corporate grocery stores in these fights, who have union employees. They promise them benefits. They can't meet in the marketplace anymore, and that's where the real fight's going on. Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, this is again a battle which goes back close to a hundred years, um, when the in the pre-national labor relations day there was always the argument that was made that unionized firms were really more efficient than non-unionized firms. And one of the ways that you could uh, expose, I think, the falsehood of that was as follows. Suppose that you have an industry with four firms, three of which are unionized and one of which is not, and you really believe that unionized story. What should be the role of the three firms with respect to the fourth one? They should say, please, please, remain non-union and you will be forever inefficient. Yeah, we'll and then we will be you. able to outperform you. So, what you should do them is expect them to have pickets walking around hmm. the thing saying, stay non-union so we can be rich, fat, and happy. That's never what happens. The whole law of primary and secondary boycotts arose in large part because the three firms that were subject to unions would tell the unions, look, We don't like you very much, but we could live with you so long as you could find a way to bring that fourth fellow into the fold. You better run a boycott which says unfair to labor so that you could cut off its suppliers and its customers and drive it out of business. Now, you would never do that if you were trying to drive out an inefficient firm, so it's clear what's going on there. And yet, you should understand, I think, that there is a long movement in labor economics which say essentially that unions are largely benevolent organizations which handle various kinds of internal grievances, and so therefore what they do, they improve the efficiency of the firm. If that were true, they would be accepted voluntarily. And in fact, in certain circumstances, they are accepted voluntarily for precisely that reason but when you accept them voluntarily you often put all sorts of limitations by agreement on what it is that they can do and how they could work and you may have a series of unions that help represent workers with individual grievances but that doesn't mean you're going to exceed to collective bargaining over the basic wage and and benefits and grievance packages that are out there so i mean it's a very funny thing and in fact one of the things people should know is that the national labor relations act Banned unions, company unions, which had that configuration. Indeed, one of the things that's so striking about modern law is you've got an individual worker with a grievance, and he comes up to you and says, gee, I think you've got a point. Let me change it, this, that, and the other way. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just committed what they call an unfair labor practice, you are not allowed to adjust any, any grievance with any individual worker unless the union is there to protect its interest under the, protective, under the collective bargaining agreement. So it's a very, very complicated sort of industrial structure that we've put up. And in general, it's highly inefficient. So what happens? I guess that's your next question, right?
0: No, my, actually, my next question is, if you had your druthers, what would you uh, rather see? What? If for that the way we treat unions and workers?
1: Well, I mean, but I've always been in favor of the repeal of the National Labor Relations Act and allowing firms to put forward contracts, um, which say that if you wish to work for us, you cannot join a union. That was called the yellow dog contract by the union types. But essentially what it does is it makes sure that monopolistic unions cannot... uh, basically gain power over multiple firms that would otherwise be competitive in the same industry. And I would also make it very clear that the firms could not collude amongst themselves, because that would be also a violation of the antitrust laws.
0: Now, having said that, and I, and sharing your your sentiment certainly on the union side, I'm not sure as I'm as aggressive as you are on the corporate side because I'm Neither a not. I'm I mean, a firm in
1: collusion in order to restrict in wage wages that would be a a core Sherman Act violation. Yeah,
0: I just think competition among firms might keep that from happening, yeah, that and I worry the
1: argument over how much cheating would take place yeah. against the so called collective solution.
0: You know I agree with you on that. Uh, certainly on the union side, although I may be more optimistic on the competition side with corporations uh, in terms of the Sherman Act. But here, here's the question. Even with that protection, unions are, are dwindling in importance as, economic, as an economic phenomenon. That's right, phenomenon. and the question
1: is why. Mm-hmm. And And there are real explanations, and perhaps it's worthwhile to explain why it is that they have to go so much into politics because they have so little success in collective bargaining organizations with the firms. Um, The first thing I think one ought to know is is the magnitude of the decline in the private sector, which has not been matched, of course, in the public sector. In 1954, around 35 percent of the American workforce was unionized. 52 years later, that number is under under 9 percent, I think, today. And it's been a pretty steady decline over that entire period. That's the first point. The second point that one has to note in this particular area is there are really no important changes in the substantive law of labor relations that accounts for this particular shift. Uh, this is a field in which most of the important decisions were decided either right after the New Deal period or essentially up to 1970. There's very little about it which is distinctive, new, or exciting in that period. Hmm. So It's not a legal stuff that's breaking the change. What is breaking it? Well, there are lots of things, I think, that are doing it. Uh, One of them is I think the decline of tariff walls means that the importation of foreign products is in fact a real limitation on the amount that any firm can can charge. And if the firm can't charge an extra rent, it's not going to be able to pay monopoly wages to its workers. So globalization has surely weakened unions in some areas. Uh, The second feature that does so is there's what we call heterogeneity within the workforce. And what does that mean? Uh, when you're sitting there at the Reaver Ridge plant in 1940 and Ford Motor Company has 8,000 people under the same roof doing very routinized and standard jobs, there's very little conflict of interest amongst the workers, so you can work a collective agreement that's going to be good for one and good for all. Modern workforces tend to be smaller in locations. They're more more service-oriented, more educated, less more white-collar. Harder to get a sort of single-standard contract that works for all of them. The heterogeneity means that workers are reluctant to join a union when they have to pay large amounts of fees from which they're going to get back very little individualized treatment. A third feature I think that does this in the same way is increased mobility in the labor markets. When folks used to go to work in the mine or in the uh, river Ridge plant, they were there for 20 or 30 years. If they invest early on in forming a union, they're going to be able to have a lifetime in which to recoup the benefits from that front-end investment. But if you've got mobility across jobs that takes place every 18 months and then every three years you move into another city or whatever it is, your willingness to invest in the long-term success of a union, of which you're not going to be a member, is going to be correspondingly diminished. So that's a third explanation. And a fourth explanation is employers are much better at figuring out the way in which to play the game. Some people say it's all because they engage in the illegal activities under the statutes. There is certainly some of that intransigence. But I would put it to you in the following way. Once you know what the obvious mistakes are in dealing with unions and you have good advice, you don't make them a second time. The learning curve turns out to value employers more than it turns out to help the individual workers. Let me just sort of give you one simple example. Um, You know, in 1936... You didn't build your plants with an eye to labor statutes. Well, the year comes, uh, 1980, you're building a plant. You're going to figure out where you site that plant, and you're going to put it in a certain neighborhood. You're going to figure out that you don't want to put it in city where you know pickets could come along public streets and block your exits, so you're going to set it back. You're going to have various kinds of entryways that are hard to block. You may have a heel pad up on the roof. You'll do a number of things that you will make it more difficult for people to try and strangle you off. And so what happens is the planning on the employer side, since they really don't want these unions, they don't regard them as a benefit, has become much more sophisticated, much more systematic, much more organized, and it's much harder for labor to find something that it can do. I mean, basically the rule of thumb is if you're dealing with a complicated kind of situation and management plays its cards right and labor plays its cards right, management will win. And so it is extremely difficult, given all of these factors, for these guys to reverse things. So what happens is essentially they start taking potshots at each other. The AFL-CIO, which merged around 1954, is now running a real risk of breakup because everybody's restless about the pace of unionization. But you can't do it. There are no huge plants out there that you could unionize. You know, Try and go down into Alabama and unionize the Mercedes plant, right? You can't do it. I mean, given where they're located, given how the workers go, and so forth. And if you try and unionize a fast food place, they'll simply shut down the outlet that is unionized and all the others will take over the business. So it's a very much rougher environment for unions than it was before, which means, in effect, where they are entrenched... They know that they can't expand their influence by unionizing Walmarts that's not worked, that it's not likely to work. So if you can't take them over, what you have to do is to take your political count and drive them out of business, and that's the pattern of argument that we're seeing
0: now. I just want to add a footnote to that story, which I think you told extremely well. You said management wins and labor loses. When you said labor, you meant unions, no, I
1: meant not the
0: workers. Um, uh, no, certain... I think
1: it's quite the opposite. Um One of the things that you try and tell people is when you join a union at any time, this is the profile that you have on wages and advancement. If it's a strong union and a stable industry, you're going to have a very well-protected downside, but you're going to have a very sharp limit on the upside. You're in that band. The advantage of people going into non-unionized shops at lower wages is they are no longer basically hamstrung by dual loyalties. They can go to an employer and say, look, I'm just looking after this business. And they could get themselves promoted beyond the secretarial pool, beyond the work deck, into some middle position. And in a lot of small businesses that are non-union, you have people coming in at relatively modest positions, ending up 20 years later, having rather significant management responsibilities. Look, it's only a small fraction of people who can do that, obviously. But that is... Means, But those are very important people to the firm. So what happens when you see this is that people, and this is, I think, very important, who think of themselves as being productive and energetic workers will, in effect, value the high-side opportunities more than the low-side security. They will opt out of unions. And that means that the folks who are going into unions have this protectionist mentality, they're not going to find the really able people to lead them coming up from the ranks that they might have been able to do so in a previous generation. So in addition to everything else, there's this subtle worker of selection effect that is influenced by the by the packages that they could promise
0: you. That's, that's a very interesting point. And so
1: I always say, when, when my students ask me, I said, look, if, if you really think you're good, the last thing you want to do is to take a civil service job, which is a union equivalent, because you know exactly where you're going to be 30 years from now no matter how much labor and skill you bring, Bring to the job, and you know you see this all the time. By the way, in the, in the teaching business, which is you know a public area, you ask, well, why is that unionized when private unions have failed? Well, because they have a very different structure. The, you don't have to get certified through an election. Under a collective bargaining agreement, the state requires the school districts to have that in exchange for which they give up the right to strike. So now you've got these complicated negotiations, and they're extremely rigid and tiered. I mean, I have actually taken, you know, a look at the univ- at the not, the city of Chicago teachers' agreement. You know, no teacher shall spend more than eight minutes on hall duties every four days, and it's that level of particularity. It's a complete work agreement in in which it's such detail. And you have somebody who really thinks that educational policy is important, and they could go to work for a good private school, and they may get, say, only two-thirds the wages, but they know in five years they're going to be better off if they're very, very able. And so what you do in a strange way is you tend to demoralize by removing the upside teachers in the public area. It gets, so it gets completely complicated, I mean, you know, uh, in how these things work. But the long-term trend in these areas is all in the same direction. Um, or to put it another way, you and I are both firm believers in, in technical areas and in business areas that technical innovation erodes legal monopolies, right? Yeah. And, well, this is a classic case in which occupational innovation tends to erode labor monopolies. And it's very clear that if you didn't have the state backup and the public union side, uh, that number would not be 37 percent of the force. It would be what it is in the private side. And interestingly enough, I think last year, for the first time, there was actually a decline, actually a decline in the percentage of public workers who were in unions.
0: I just want to add an additional point, which again, I don't, this doesn't conflict with anything you said, but I think it's important for for our listeners who think of unions as the, the guardian of, of workers' wages. There are a lot of people out there who think that wages in America are high because of unions or the minimum wage. The minimum wage protects at the federal level about 2% of the workforce. Uh, unions protect about 8% of the workforce, so-called protect. So why is it that so many of us who aren't in unions, who aren't affected by the minimum wage make so much more than that and it's because we have alternatives it's because of competition by employers for our services and people just assume that, well, if you don't have that union protection, the, the employer can take advantage of you. You've got less yeah, bargaining power uh, in some abstract sense. Yeah, but our look, bargaining I, power… I, I fu- don't
1: think people believe that anymore in quite the same way. Well, um, I think that's one of the reasons why unions run into rocky stuff. Remember, let's keep this in proportion. Um, the statutes that they try to introduce in Maryland, they try to get in many other states, and they fail. The kind of situation that they're trying to get in Chicago has been introduced in many other cities, and they failed. I think if you were to ask most people today about this, their attitudes about unions might not talk about some of the these long-term economic issues that we've discussed, but they would generally have a slight distaste about them because they regard them as boss-ridden and somewhat corrupt. And, in effect, they don't think that they represent the workers, and therefore they would not represent them. If anything, the the, the really complicated issue with modern workers has been the shift in preference from using unions to protect individual workers against discrimination or invidious treatment to the use of the anti-discrimination laws in employment to achieve the same end. Um, And there's a broader level of support for that kind of intervention, which I also regard as misguided, than there is on the union side. So if one's trying to think about this, it's wrong to sort of, I think, envision the two Walmart cases that we've had as tips of an iceberg that's going to gain in momentum. Well, I I guess it's probably a, a movement which is maybe has reached its crest, maybe have a little bit further to go. But I think so long as you've got a lot of little suburbs around Chicago, this stuff is not going to take off in that fashion because I don't believe that the Congress is going to pass a $13 minimum wage law, um, which is going to apply only to big-box stores.
0: Well, I I agree with that uh, optimism in general, and I hope we can come back another time to talk about the anti-discrimination stuff.
1: That's a great topic. But I
0: do worry that when people look at the alleged stagnation in the American standard of living, which I think is a misreading of the statistical evidence. Yes,
1: I read your blog on it, which I thought was on the money.
0: Thank you, but when people talk about that, they say, well… The reason that the average worker's income is stagnating is because they have no protection from these big corporate employers, and I think that's just – I think it's a misreading of statistical evidence. But they sort of merged together this bargaining power union thing, and I think you're right. The romance about unions has faded. Uh, but there's still this sort of um, glow of some kind. I find. Well, it...
1: I mean, there is the New York Times and their economic reporting, and people miss all sorts of things about some of these numbers. Uh, look, I have no doubt that the actual wage position in the United States is worse than it ought to be in virtue of a variety of regulations. Um, but I do think when you're dealing with abstract conceptions like this, and there are all sorts of claims, it's very difficult for people to figure out what set of theories make sense when, in fact, their usual way of doing business is to respond to immediate stimuli and adjust accordingly. That is, you can be a lot more rational in the marketplace than you can in the classroom, because when the feedback mechanisms come, they're so strong that you adapt very quickly, Hmm. whereas when the arguments come, you know, you're hearing everything from everybody, and there's no reality check in exactly the same way. It's a Um,
0: religious belief in many ways. What? It's a religious belief. Well, I think
1: so. I mean, some people say the same thing about markets, but look, I think think we're sort of coming to a close, but this is what I would say in general, is that the, the greatest protection that people have is the ability somewhere else. That's firms with respect to employees, and it's employees with respect to firms.
0: Customers with respect
1: to products. And so what you want to do is to create choice out there rather than to say to two people, you guys are locked in a deadly embrace, and what we're going to do is to figure out the rules of combat, which explain the way in which you're allowed to fight in the clinches. In one situation, you avoid the boxing match, and you find a partner that you actually like to do business with in the other you're basically in the ring with these guys and the two of you will basically bloody each other until the referee calls you apart labor negotiations are like boxing matches they're bilateral monopolies What they do is they raise transactions costs and kill transactions. What we want to do is go the other way around. We don't want to have people bargaining all the time. We want to just pick something off the shelf, pay the cashier, and walk out the door. There's no mystique whatsoever to spending all your energy and trying to figure out how to save another dime on a transaction and spend $0.10 in the process of doing it.
0: It's well said. I want to thank Richard Epstein, for joining us today, professor of law at the University of Chicago, senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. You've been listening to EconTalk. You can go to econtalk.org. Find other podcasts, links to this podcast. You can comment on this podcast. Thanks for listening.